0: I'm Aida, I'm Anusha, and today we have the authors for the book for Colored Girls Who Have Considered Politics on the Pod, but first, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find us at FlyOnTheWallPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and at FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. Joining us today are Yolanda Caraway, Donna Brazil,
1: Leah Daughtry, and Mian Moore. We're so excited to have them on the pod.
0: So today we are so excited to have four authors of the book for colored girls who have considered politics, and first up we have Yolanda Carraway, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the DC Fairness Commission, so thank you so much for coming on the pod today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So one big new element of the DNC to come out of the 1984 convention negotiations between Walter Mondale and Jesse Jackson was the Fairness Commission, which you led. Um, So how were you chosen to lead the commission?
2: Oh, well, that's interesting. That is a backstory. So part of the agreement between Walter Mondale and Jesse Jackson was that Maynard Jackson, who was then uh, mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, was going to run the Fairness Commission. So the the, the DNC chair um, had some issues with that. Back in those days, anybody who seemed to want to go along with what Reverend Jackson wanted was, you know, they were kind of afraid and just a little squeamish about it. And, you know, you probably, probably before, I'm sure this is before you were born, so you, all you know is what you read about it. <laughs> um, and they had a meeting once and, that, that I do talk about in the book. They met to discuss this, and it was kind of like, eh, I felt like I was caught in the middle and they kind of talked at each other and not to each other and just kind of left it as that. So once they left it, I knew, I knew he was not going to pick Maynard Jackson simply because that's who Jesse wanted. And I tried to come up with an alternative, which I thought I came up with a very good alternative uh, in uh, Ernest Dutch Morial, who was the mayor of uh, New Orleans at the time. And he was also, I think... Either, I think he was the head of the, the, uh, Socia- uh, the National Association of Mayors then. Um, and I said, you know, everybody likes him. He's a DNC member. There really isn't anything. There's no baggage here. You know, it would be an easy thing to do. And he was an African, he was African-American. So, you know, I, I made my pitch and uh, he called me, uh, Paul Kirk, who was the chair, called me into his office Uh, a few days later and said that he had decided that he was going to make Don Fowler the chair of the Fairness Commission. Now Don is a great guy. I love him to death. He was like one of the first white men I met at the (laughs) TNC (laughs) and he's so much fun. We call him the colonel because he was a colonel in the the military Uh, and he's a great guy. had no problem working with him. It was just the whole principle of the the whole thing. So uh, I got a little pissed and I left and I went home and I was pretty upset, and Jean Dunn, who was uh, who worked for Paul, called me that night, and she said, I know you're upset, but Paul wants you to be executive director of the commission. And I said, mm, I don't know, let me think about it. So I called Maynard Jackson, and I told him what happened. And I said, you know, I'm just sick of these people, you know, we go through this stuff all the time, I'm just tired of it. And I don't think I want to do it. And he said, "Yes, you will do it. You should do it because you can't make you can't get mad and walk away. This is for you to be a part of this. You get to run it and make sure it's done right." So he basically talked me into doing it. So that was kind of how I got to be chair of the fairness commission. But it, what we did what we did was change the rules for the next uh, election cycle. Uh, originally, it had been a, a winner. I don't know if you winner take all. Uh, process where whoever wins, whoever wins the most votes gets all the delegates. We wanted to change it to proportional representation so that everybody who ran got a portion of the delegates based on the portion of their votes. So that change, I think that brought a whole lot of people and new people into the party, a whole lot of new people running, you know, running and just getting involved in politics because now it was so much more open and inclusive. So we were always very proud of that.
1: Cool. Um, the Commission's main job was to rewrite the rules for the 1988 primary to make the process fair. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the negotiations over the rules like? Was it contentious or was there pretty sound consensus in what changes needed to be made?
2: No, nah, there were there were a few contentious things, but most people were okay. They, they were okay with it. They knew that this was one of the deals that was made at the, at the um, convention and um, they just wanted to make it work and they wanted they wanted the process to be more inclusive.
0: And so um, the DNC seems to have faced a similar moment of reckoning after 2016 most recently when many people complained that, among other things, the superdelegates were undemocratic or unfair. Um, What do you think about that? Do you think they handled the situation well, or would you have changed something about that?
3: Well,
2: first of all, the role of the superdelegate. Superdelegates are uh, at at large delegates... Um, members of organization, Democratic organizations, members of the House and Senate, governors, state reps, mayors—these were people who didn't. In terms of the elected officials, that was done so they didn't have to run against their constituents. Now, on the other, then, and then all of the at-large DNC members were super delegates, um, and I think that was probably the bone of contention. But the reason that they did that was because was to give. A more diversity and to allow more people into the process because you know you got some states like Minnesota and other states who had nothing but white people on uh, or white men pretty much you know coming uh, that were on the DNC so this was to balance this they were meant to balance and then I can't remember exactly when the superdelegates they started with superdelegates I was one for 20 years actually um, They just became. They got an automatic. They were automatic delegates to the convention, and then somebody named them super delegates. Um, I don't. I I think it's a problem. I think what they've done is a problem. I think it uh, takes a voice from people who had a voice who wouldn't have had one otherwise. Um, I understand that. I I think that they may be. They may even go to a second ballot in twenty twenty. Because you might not get, you know, we're gonna have so many candidates in this race. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Kind of fun, you know. <laughs> it's like every day you wake up and ooh, who's gonna to run today? Yeah. <laughs> but so we'll see. It, it'll be interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, we've loved hearing from you. Thanks
2: for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me.
0: So now we're so excited to have Donna Brazil on the pod. Thanks for coming.
4: Oh, that's a great honor.
0: So um, we're just going to talk a little bit about your pre-DNC career. Um, So even before working at the DNC more recently, you knew the party pretty well. I mean, you worked on every presidential, Democratic presidential campaign from 1976 through 2000. So how would you say the Democratic Party as an institution has become more inclusive over the time you've worked there?
4: Well, first of all, it's great to be part of this podcast. And, of course, uh, as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University since 2002, it's a great honor to to meet both of you. Um, I started my internship uh, at the DNC in 1982. I wanted to get involved. Ann Lewis, uh, who is mentioned in the book, was uh, one of uh, Yolanda's early mentors, but she also mentored me. Paul Tully, who also was a political director at the DNC, recommended that I meet with Anne to learn more about opportunities. As a young person, I was actively engaged in the civil rights movement to make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday. And I went over to the DNC because I felt like once the King holiday effort was over with, I wanted to get involved in electoral politics, and I thought the DNC was a great place to start.
1: Awesome. Um, in 2000, you became Al Gore's campaign manager, the first black woman to manage a major presidential campaign. Do you think you faced any unfair obstacles in your time in that job?
4: Well, there's no question that when I became um, uh, not only Al Gore's campaign manager, but prior to that as a deputy campaign manager working for Dick Gephardt in the 1988 cycle, and as a senior advisor in the Clinton 1992, and, and also as a staff person in ninety six. Women and minorities have always had a hard time getting their seats at the table. And one of the things I liked about uh, Vice President Al Gore is that he gave me an opportunity to first serve as a political director. And when the vacancy uh, 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 when the vacancy of the campaign manager uh, became available, Gore came to me first. And he said, are you ready? And I said, let me think it over, because I wanted time to think it over. But I also believed that in, in the year 1999, Um, America was still uh, wrestling with women and minorities in leadership positions and I was afraid of uh, any backlash that could occur as a result of my role. But luckily there were no backlash and I had an opportunity to serve one of, it was one of my dreams as a little girl. I was 16 when I said I wanted to be a campaign manager before I turned 40. So I got a chance uh, four months before my 40th birthday to become campaign manager for Al Gore.
0: That's amazing. love that. Um, So I guess one last question we have is, um, how do you think the Democratic Party can become more inclusive going forward?
4: I think the Democratic Party uh, has become more inclusive over time. Uh, We have rules that encourage women to uh, not only run for delegate, but also 50% of our delegates are female. We have proportional representation, uh, which allows uh, not just people of color, but also we encourage young people to get involved. The party is inclusive. We have within our leadership structure women state chairs, women officers. Uh, I've served as an officer twice uh, for the Democratic Party. Uh, I think going forward our job is to encourage more women and minorities and people of, in color in particular, especially young people, to get in the political pipeline to find their seats at the table and one of the things we stress in our book for color girls who consider politics is that, you know, there's no age requirement to serve. Everyone can be great, as Dr. King said, because everyone can serve. And I hope young people uh, begin to take their seats at the table, become inspired uh, to serve in public office, and to, uh, you know, decide to pursue careers in politics. I have it's been a great opportunity one of the reasons why I enjoy teaching here at Georgetown is I get an opportunity to talk to young people to encourage them to run for office And you can imagine traveling across the country and seeing my former students run for office some of them win some of them don't but you know the good news is that they're running and they're running to make a difference and they're running to represent uh, not just women but people uh, uh, from all walks of life so this is a great opportunity um, and a great time in, I think, our our nation's history for more women to serve.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, thank thank you, you so much for coming on. I call. look forward
4: to having you join me one day in, in my class here at Georgetown, <laughs> uh, Women in American Politics. It's an exciting course, and one of the uh, requirements um, uh, is to interview a woman who has inspired you, who is either elected official or appointed official, so we can find out if women continue to face obstacles and serving uh, in public office.
0: That sounds fantastic. Yeah, and to our listeners, definitely take this class. <laughs> yes, yes.
4: And I'm available every Wednesday uh, for 17 years. This has uh, been the place I call home, and I am a serious Hoya fan. Ooh. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much.
2: Thank,
1: Thank you so you. much. Hi, right now we have Leah Daughtry here with us today. Hi, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, So in 2008, we saw highly successful conventions on both sides, both the DNC and the RNC. In fact, last season, we interviewed Ed Goas, who ran the 2008 RNC, and now we want to hear your take on the 2008 DNC as the CEO of that convention. Um, As you know in the book, the 2008 primary created divisions among the four of you, with Donna Uncommitted, Yolanda and Minyan supporting Hillary, and you remaining neutral at the DNC. How difficult was it to remain neutral?
5: it's actually really easy and it's the best seat to be in because you don't have to <laughs> choose among friends so as, uh, so it's it was, it was uh, the catbird seat really so my job was to be fair and to administer the convention in a fair and impartial way between the two campaigns the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign so uh, I have friends on both sides so I was happy not to have to be able not to be able to uh, to have to choose among my friends and among two great <laughs> candidates, so it was it was wonderfully easy. This is this this cycle actually is the first cycle uh, since 1984 that I will not be working for the Democratic Party. So it's the first cycle that I get to choose a candidate, and I'm there are so many good ones. I don't know what I'm going to do. So many candidates. <laughs> I'm looking forward to being courted.
2: So. <laughs>
0: So, in memorable show of Party Unity, Hillary moved to nominate Obama by acclamation. What role did you play in orchestrating that?
5: That was pretty simple, and that's generally what's what's done. Uh, when you know who, when it's I've evident who the nominee is going to be, that the, the, the also ran, um, uh, does a, a vote by acclamation, if you go back in convention archives, that's generally what's done. What what creates, what's challenging are things like 2016 with Senator Sanders, who uh, would eventually... Uh, concede, but he wanted us to go through the entire roll call of states all the way to Wyoming and that's not what's usually done. You usually stop the roll call when a candidate uh, reaches the number of delegates. So that took a little bit of negotiation and trying to navigate our party rules in 2016 in order to allow us to complete the roll call like and go all the way to Wyoming. So that was a far more interesting and difficult uh, thing to do.
1: Um- could you please describe the decision to hold Obama's acceptance speech at Mile High Stadium rather than in the Pepsi Center? Was there any internal conflict over where that would be the right move?
5: Yeah, you know, we we not done that before. And so when the campaign came to us and said, we, we're thinking about this, uh, but you have to keep it secret. It's, uh, it's like, well, hmm. first of all, How do you go to Mile High Stadium and say, we'd like to look at your stadium for this particular date without them adding two and two and getting four. Uh, So there was quite a bit of um, subterfuge happening in order for us to even find Mm -hmm. out if if Mile High was available and then what kind of facilities they have in order to house our convention. Our conventions are not, they're big, but they're not stadium big. So uh, creating all of the back rooms, uh, the 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 stagecraft that has to happen uh, for the convention to run, where the media goes, what entrances you use, where do the buses drop off the delegates, where does the bus drop off the press, all of those sorts of nitty gritty details, which where does the stage go, had to be done uh, in in very secret fashion, and it's uh, an additional expense. It was about five million dollars more added to the budget uh, that we were wow. not expecting. So. All of those kinds of things had to be figured out and the small things that people don't know um, uh, in order to secure the Pepsi Center which is where the other three nights are uh, the, the conventions are always national security events so the Secret Service comes in and you know their magnetometers and all of that we had used all of the fencing and the magnetometers available in the surrounding three states So there weren't any to secure Mile High Stadium. So what we had to do is as soon as the gavel dropped on Wednesday night, we had to start dismantling all of the bike rack, all of the magnetometers, and ship them over to Mile High. And if you had been out that night at about one in the morning, you would have seen a caravan of golf carts (laughs) loaded up with all the equipment to take it over to mile higher in order to sh- secure it. service had to do a sweep and all of that. So it all happened like 1 and 2 in the morning, as soon as we could get people out of Pepsi. So we left Pepsi just sort of unsecured. So lots of things disappeared <laughs> that night. Lots of TVs walked away because there was no security. Everything had to be moved over. There just wasn't enough equipment to secure both places at once.
1: Wow, that's quite a story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, thank you so much for being here. We love hearing your stories. That's really cool. Sure, anytime. Hi, so we're here with Mian Moore. So happy to have you. How are you?
3: I am great. Thank you guys for inviting us.
1: Of course. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about your work at the Clinton White House. Okay. Um, You worked as assistant to the president and director of White House political affairs during the Clinton administration, but before joining the White House, you spent some time at the DNC. Mm -hmm. Tell us about getting hired by the DNC from the Rainbow Push Coalition and conversations described in the book between DNC Chair David Wilhelm and Reverend Jesse Jackson. Was it a difficult decision to switch roles?
3: It was absolutely difficult because, (laughs) really, because you know, when you're like an activist and then you, you go from being an activist and coming inside, you know, it was probably more difficult for me personally because I really wanted to make sure I kept my values. You know, you really want to make sure that if a person calls you on the outside, they know that you're still true to who you were when you were on the outside. But the conversation with Reverend Jackson and David Wilhelm was actually kind of comical as I look back on it, because (laughs) Reverend Jackson, you know, what he did throughout his career is he trained a lot of us, and he felt like he gave us the tools and the skills to really compete with our white counterparts, and as soon as we got to that level, they came looking for us, and they would steal us. So he told David, you took the motor out my computer, and you know, poor David, he didn't know what that meant, the motor (laughs) out my computer, so... Anyway, but it was fun. They they have remained friends, and I have remained friends with David. It was you know, it was a, the best decision I made, frankly, to just expand.
0: So, in the book, you say that when Chief of Staff Erskine Bowles called you to offer you a job at the White House, you were initially hesitant. Mm-hmm. What made you change your mind?
3: Well, I think it was because I got out my own way, because I really determined that it was probably more fear than anything. You know, you look at. You know, somebody asking you to come to the White House, and you say to yourself, okay, here you have this kid from the south side of Chicago. What on earth would she know about a freaking White House? Is what my head was saying to me. And so I just really decided to step back a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe if I go, maybe if I just try it, you know, if I fail, great. But, you know, I had to try it. So I think that's the reason it was me stopping me from going. So."
1: In the book, you recount a piece of advice that Reverend Jackson gave you Mm -hmm. when you started at the White House, quote, your dignity level must always match your insult level. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, you can't be afraid to speak up when you know what is being said should be challenged. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about those moments of internal strife in the White House. How did you deal with situations when you disagreed with what some in the administration were doing?
3: I'd always start with an all due respect. (laughs) (laughs) And they always knew what was coming next. It didn't take much more than that. But, you know, the real key to that, to disagreeing with your colleagues, is first you've got to try to build relationships with them so that they will understand that what you are saying is not so that you can speak your own mind. It's because you either have a relationship with the community the community on the outside or you happen to know more about, it, about the issue than they do. So I think my first chore was to really just develop good relationships Then the second chore became, in all due respect, that is not the way it's going to go down. (laughs) That's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, President Clinton recently did a a video for me, and he started it off by saying, in all due respect, Mignon. (laughs) So I guess he knows. <laughs> cool.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on the. podcast, It's oh, was great a, having you. Thank oh, you.
3: wonderful! I'm so I'm so delighted to see two females running this podcast.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> Girl power. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod.